I wonder this morning what you think poses the greatest threat to Christianity. What do you think poses the greatest threat to Christianity? Maybe you would think it's ISIS, for we've all seen or heard of those barbaric videos of Christians being beheaded. And of course, they've not been shy at all. They've been quite public and clear with their desire to butcher the infidel, to enslave his family, to take his women and female children for their own concubines, right? to, to establish a caliphate, to usher in the apocalypse. But maybe you don't think so much of ISIS. That's another part of the world. Maybe you think more like apologist Josh McDowell when he said the greatest threat to Christianity is the Internet. To quote him, the Internet has given atheists, agnostics, skeptics, the people who like to destroy everything that you and I believe, the almost equal access to your kids as your youth pastor and even you have, whether you like it or not. Others wouldn't go there. Others might go to the sort of rampant sec- um, secularism of our college universities and campuses, a secularism that breeds safe zones where students are expected in those zones to be immune from any kind of dissenting opinion. You know, once upon a time, you respected someone actually by engaging with them in earnest dialogue. But on many campuses today, the only way to show respect for someone is actually validate how they feel. There is no room for dissenting opinions, no room for true tolerance, no room for the, for the First Amendment, and thus Christianity is either marginalized or it's criminalized. But others may say, no, the, the greatest threat is actually it's the, it's the Supreme Court and the way they legislate morality. And they might point to the recent Obergefell versus Hodges decision that legalized same-sex marriage in this country. But I think a case can be made that the greatest that Christianity faces, it's not ISIS, it's not the Internet, it's not Calvinism or what's happening on college campuses, it's not Islam or Hinduism or atheism or Buddhism, but it's eroticism, eroticism, the increasingly uninhibited search to fulfill our sexual passions in whatever form we choose. From the internet right, to network TV, 50 shades of gray to the tabloids on the magazine rack, we are a hyper-sexualized culture. And it used to be that sex was sold in red light districts and in those sheedy, uh, seedy shops, you know, on the other side of town. But now you need only to look at the, the sides of city buses, the backs of magazine covers, halftime shows of football games. And Christians are clearly not immune. Pornography is endemic within the younger cultures, both male and increasingly female. Ashley Madison has turned adultery, in fact, into, into an enterprise. Their tagline says it all, life is short, have an affair. Life is short. Of course, so is the second command, or the seventh commandment. And of course, that seventh commandment, you know, thou shalt not commit adultery. That didn't stop over 37 million people from signing up on that website. And following the computer hack this past August, scores of pastors were actually forced to step down. And many more marriages are still seeking to pick up the pieces. We see the effects of, of private sins as they become public. You know, divorce, 
no longer a scandal, but it's presented as an opportunity really to better ourselves. Our own Southern Baptist Convention is widely reported that the divorce rate among marriages within the SBC is actually no different than the culture at large, may in fact even be higher. So what do we make of these developments? How are we to respond? Well, for that, I want us to turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You can find it there on page 954 if you're looking in your pew Bible. you uh, If you don't have a Bible, it's there actually in the seat back before you. You're welcome to take that out. I'd encourage you to do that to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And if you're just visiting with us this morning or perhaps you're returning right for classes at U of A, I don't want to bring you up to speed. Corinth, right, the city to whom Paul is writing, it was... A, uh, a young Roman colony that had been resettled under the reign of Julius Caesar and had been resettled with Roman citizens that were looking for prosperity and for opportunity, looking for upward mobility. And it was situated really at the center of the trade routes between east and west. And so it quickly became a thriving city, a prosperous city, a city that took pride in its wealth, in its intellectual sophistication and its sexual liberation, and all the religious pluralism. And in so many ways, it's just a mirror of our own culture, the one we live in today. And in the early 50s, Paul arrives in his missionary journeys. He arrives in Corinth. He preaches the gospel. He plants a church, and he moves on, and he moves on to Ephesus. But he's not in Ephesus too long before he starts to hear rumors, rumors that something is wrong in Corinth. And it becomes clear as you read that the the cultural values of Corinth, the individualism, the ambition, the prosperity, and the promiscuity, well, that had all begun to run rampant within the body there in Corinth. And so we read about a church that's torn by division. It's racked by lawsuits. It's plagued with immorality. This church has really just become a circus of sin. And we said the problem, if you recall in the very first sermon, the, the problem's not that there's a church in Corinth, right? but there's too much of Corinth in the church. Too much of Corinth in the church. And so Paul writes to them this letter of 1 Corinthians, and this letter, this whole letter, all 16 chapters, really has one main argument. I said it a little quickly last week. I'll say it a little slower this morning. And that's this. The character of our gatherings is to increasingly reflect the character of our God. That's the whole argument of 1 Corinthians. You want to put it in a sentence, there it is. The character of our gatherings is to increasingly reflect the character of our God. Now, in 110 to 421, the passage we looked at last week, Paul dealt with the pride that led to the various divisions and disunity within the body. But in chapter 5, he's going to turn and move us to a, a different manifestation of that pride and arrogance. For not unlike us, Corinth was captive to its own forms of eroticism. And it seems that the sort of licentiousness, the sexual promiscuity that marked Corinth had found a home in the church. So how is the church then to respond? What does Paul say? Well, we find it right there, chapter 5, verse 1. And before I start reading, just a a quick word uh, to parents. Because as you can tell from the intro and as we'll see in the text, Paul's dealing with some adult sins in 1 Corinthians 5. And I don't have any intention to sensationalize those sins. 
but I do intend to be clear about them. So if at any point you feel it would just be appropriate to maybe exit for a minute, feel no embarrassment, entirely understand. All right. With that, let's go ahead. Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul writes, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Well, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or as an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Oh, friends, Paul just dropped the hammer. Right, He pulls no punches in 1 Corinthians 5. How are they to deal with this licentiousness, the sin in their midst? Well, he says first, this will be our first point, he says Christians are to judge. First, Christians are to judge. That's the first response. And now I say that, we're to judge, and I recognize that statement rings on our ears or in our ears like sort of nails across a chalkboard. You know, it used to be that the most recognizable verse in the Bible was John 3.16. You know, for God so loved the world. There was the the rainbow guy with the wig at all the NBA and NFL games in the 80s, you know, Tim Tebow had that reference under his eyes during the BCS National Championship game. It's a verse we know. And yet, today, the average person actually can't finish that sentence. The average person on the street, they don't know how the rest of that verse concludes. But Matthew 7.1, that's a verse we all know. Judge not lest you be judged. Judge not, lest you be judged. It's our culture's doctrinal confession. We 
know it, probably because at some point we've had that verse thrown back in our faces. It is this verse that's prated about under that modern guise of tolerance. But of course, we've got to recognize when we hear Matthew 7, 1, Jesus isn't prohibiting judgments of any kind, only judgments of a particular kind. Because of course, in the Sermon on the Mount, the entire sermon, the very next verses following Matthew 7, 1, Jesus is actually calling the disciples to make judgments, judgments between right and wrong in thinking and in behavior. The kind of judgments he's condemning are are hypocritical judgments, pharisaical judgments, the kinds of judgments where we're unduly harsh and critical, putting other people under other standards that we would not apply to ourselves. It's why Jesus will say in John 7, 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment, right? Do it with right judgment. Far from being off limits, Jesus teaches The judgments, they're not only legitimate, right? They're mandated for us. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. There's a judgment involved here between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, Jesus says, tell it to the church. And it seems that this is the situation we now find in 1 Corinthians 5. So if you want to think about it almost, it's as if those verses I just read have already transpired, and now we're picking up what's happening in the church in Corinth here in chapter 5. Because Paul says in verse 1, it's actually reported that there's a kind of sexual immorality among you. And that word for sexual immorality, it's that Greek word porneia. And it's just a, it's a broad Greek word that refers to a whole host of sexual sins, whether it's adultery or fornication or homosexuality or numerous others. And that word, when he says it's actually reported, that word actually can refer more to the extent to which something is known. Paul's saying whatever's going on in the church, right, it's known everywhere. Right, what's happening there in the church, it's the talk of the town. It's all over the tabloids in Corinth. And it's such that the news is actually making it to him in Ephesus. For it's a kind of sexual immorality, he says, it's not even tolerated among the pagans. Not even among the pagans. And keep in mind, we're talking about Corinth, a city that would have prided itself in its sexual liberation. And yet whatever was going on in the church even made the community blush. And then we see why. A man has his father's wife. It's a case of incest. Where there is a member in the congregation openly sleeping with his stepmother. Father's wife is how the Old Testament referred to a stepmother as opposed to a man's mother. In that case, we just use the word mother. But it looks like he's openly sleeping with his stepmother. And incest was deplorable under Roman law you could in fact be expelled from Corinth for it. And Paul's saying what occurs among them in Corinth, in the church, doesn't even occur in the broader Corinthian community. And yet, even worse than that, verse 2, we see that they're arrogant or they're proud. Now, that you is emphatic. You are arrogant. You're proud. Paul's pointing the finger at them. right? He's calling them out. He's saying, you welcome in your midst what even the Corinthian community would expel. Forget 
the red light districts of Amsterdam? Just visit the local Corinthian church. That's where all the seedy people seem to gather. Now, when he says they're proud, it could be that they're proud because they're not just tolerating the sin among them. It could be they're proud in the fact they're even celebrating the sin that is among them. They've turned the liberality of Christ's grace to them into a license to sin. But it also could be that the pride doesn't stem from the presence of the sin among them, but the pride actually stems from the presence of the sinner among them. Remember, Rome was run on patronage. It's an ancient form of sort of cronyism, you know, where you, you get ahead in life, not according to your qualifications and how well you do a job. You get ahead in life just on the basis of who you know. And that's how Rome functioned. That's how much of the Greco-Roman world functioned. And he's already said back in 4.6 that they're puffed up. That's the same word for arrogant here. They're proud, favoring some prominent members over others. So I think it's more likely that this church is proud because a prominent member of the Corinthian community was counted among them. And they were choosing to ignore the sinful actions of that prominent man rather than lose his favor. His presence gave the church a kind of spiritual swagger, you know, that this guy was in their midst. Now, living in D.C. for years, I remember what it was like when a new presidential new president was elected. You get a new administration in town. And, of course, the churches within the city were all eager to know where might the president and the first lady and the children, where might they go to church? Right? They'd roll out the carpet. They'd extend invitations because there would be great pride, of course, if the president and the first lady would be counted among their number, sitting regularly in that front pew. That's something a church could take pride in, could truly boast about. I think this is a good warning to us. It's a good warning to us for churches love to boast of their congregants, don't they? Right? It wasn't, it's not just true in the day of Corinth. It's true in our world as well. Right? The college presidents, the football coaches the judges, the city council members, the prominent businessmen? What church doesn't want to say that those individuals are members of their church? It's a statement of affirmation of of the value and good of their work. And the temptation will then be to ignore the indiscretions of those prominent people. We don't want to ruffle any feathers. We don't want to run afoul of such prominent persons. So we overlook the offenses of those whose reputations grace our membership roles, or those who give generously to church funds. How can the Corinthians be arrogant and proud that this man was among their midst? Only if they value the power and the position of the congregant more than the purity of Christ's church. It's the only way they can be proud. Members of UBC, may we never esteem the power and position of those on our own membership roles more than the purity of our corporate witness together. Far from strutting about like proud peacocks, as this congregation seemed to do, Paul says they ought to be mourning. 
That's what he says in verse 2, they ought to be mourning. And then he says in verse 3 that he's already, right, he's already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. And then three more times, Paul's going to use that word judge down in verses 12 and 13. And the results of those judgments are to be clear. Then the incestuous man, verse 2, ought to be removed from among you. Verse 7, we read, cleanse out the old leaven. Leaven being a picture of the sin within the body. Right? Verse 13, purge the evil person from among you. Paul's calling for their public judgments to result specifically in church discipline. That's what he's calling for. Just to be clear, church discipline is when a church publicly withdraws its affirmation of an individual as a Christian by removing them from membership and participation in the Lord's Supper. Just to be clear, I'll state that about Church discipline is when a church publicly withdraws its affirmation of an individual as a Christian right, by removing them formally from membership and by uh, removing them from participation in the Lord's Supper. Now, to be clear, church discipline doesn't affect anything spiritually and finally, right? It doesn't make one a non-Christian. It's not consigning them to hell in some Roman Catholic sense of excommunication. Sometimes we get confused by that. Nor is it saying they're not welcome to attend the public services of the church. Right? In those services of the church, that's the best place for them to be. It's simply a local church saying that because of someone serious and demonstrable, right, clear, and most importantly, unrepentant sin we can no longer affirm that person's claim to be a Christian. And this is exactly the kind of judgment that Paul is calling the Corinthian church to make. And it's the same kind of judgment that he will occasionally call us to make as a church. I hope very infrequently, but inevitably in a fallen world, churches are called like the church in Corinth to make such judgments. Because this call for discipline, it's not unique to Corinth. Remember back just a few verses in chapter 4, verse 17. Paul says his, he's reminding the church of his ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Right, what Paul's instructing them in, it's, it's normative. It's meant to be the practice of all Christian churches. Right, so Christians are to judge. Christians are to judge, but, but not all people. I think a second thing we need to recognize is that Christians are to judge those within the body. Secondly, Christians are to judge those within the body. So sexual immorality was rampant in Corinth. I'm going to spare you all the sordid details other than to say that it would make what happens, you know, on Saturday night down on Dixon Street or in the frat houses, it would make that look like a rally for focus on the family. But notice, Paul's not denouncing Corinthian culture. He's not asking this church to take out television ads against all the, six, the city's sexual policies. Right? He's going after the sexual immorality, verse 1, among you. Among you. He's calling in verse 2 for the one to be removed among you. He writes in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter, 
And when he says that, this letter he's referring to there would have been a letter previous to 1 Corinthians. It was an earlier letter that we don't have. But he says, I wrote to you in that letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. But now he clarifies what he means. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. Right? That word brother or sister is just a common way in the New Testament people speak of being a part of Christ's family. It's how they refer to themselves as Christians. For he goes on to say in verse 12, Paul says, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from, and there's that same phrase again, from among you. Paul couldn't be any clearer. Yes, Christians are called to judge, but only those within the church body. And just a side note here, sometimes people talk about church membership like it's a, like it's a recent convention, like it's some power trip that pastors have invented in order to sort of control people. But I think you just got to stop here and recognize for a moment, you can't in any meaningful way formally put people outside of fellowship if they're not already inside the fellowship. You can't put people formally outside who aren't already formally inside. But to be clear, as a church, Paul's saying, what he's saying here is you've got no business judging those outside the body, which is one of the reasons why, as I preach, you're going to very rarely, if ever, hear me blasting various city ordinances from the pulpit or railing here against all of the culture wars. Make no mistake, mistake, I will lament, right? I will grieve the erosion of religious liberties that we see. And I'll work within the system of governance to protect those liberties. And if necessary, I'll call upon us as a church body to disobey the state if it's calling us to clearly disobey God's word. But God doesn't call me, he doesn't call us as a body to vilify and to denounce those outside the body. And I fear too often we flipped what Paul has to say. Too often we self-righteously revile the culture about us while we ignore the sin among us. The same churches that denounce and that condemn so forcefully what's happening out there turn around and turn a blind eye to the sin that's happening right in here. And friends... The world sees right through that. Sees right through that. We torpedo our public witness as a church when we ignore the wickedness that exists within our own congregation. Paul says we're not to withdraw from the world, but we're actually to witness to the world. And we can't effectively witness to the world when members inside our own body are guilty of sins that would make them blush. Right? They will have no reason to listen to us. I think another person put it well. It's not our being in the world that ruins us. It's allowing the world to be in us as a Christian body. We're only to judge those within our membership, those who claim to be Christians. This guy thought of himself as a brother, and yet he lived 
contrary to that profession of faith, in serious, in demonstrable, in unrepentant sin, God takes sin seriously. We read that from the, the text from Deuteronomy 27, as Robbie read earlier. Right? God takes sin very, very seriously. And when a church member won't, Paul's saying the church must. Christians are to judge those within the body. And yet, if you've ever been part of such discipline, and I think from what I understand, this church had to consider a tough case a number of years ago. If you've ever been part of, of such discipline, you know it's difficult. You know, we naturally, we want people to feel included. We don't want them to feel excluded. It almost feels anti-salvation. Like, we want them in. We don't want to put them out. Are we really trying to return, you know, the benighted days of the scarlet letter? Right, is that what we really want within our own communities? And after all, who is without sin that any of us can cast the first stone? Humanly speaking, there are many reasons why judging those within the body might sound like a really bad idea. And yet we read in verse 4, Paul says, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power or authority of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And here we see that Christians are to judge those within the body in Christ's authority. That's a third thing I want you to see. Christians are to judge those within the body in Christ's authority. In Christ's authority. The judgment of those within the body can only be rendered when the church is gathered. Verse 4, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power or the authority of the Lord Jesus. And verse 4 just echoes Matthew 18, right? verse 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And in the context of Matthew 18.20, of course, is that context of discipline that I read a little bit earlier in the service. In other words, the church, the church exercises discipline, and when it does, it does so only according to the authority that Christ has bestowed upon it. Paul isn't calling for a witch hunt. He's not calling for some modern-day Spanish inquisition. This isn't a way to settle scores or personal vendettas. That's not at all how it's to be exercised. Christ gave the local church in Matthew 16 and 18 the power of the keys, which is the power to declare the who of the gospel, right, who are genuinely believers, and the what of the gospel. Right? What do we believe? What is the gospel? Think of Galatians 1. The who of the gospel and the what of the gospel. And churches act in obedience to Christ and according to that authority, again, that he's vested within them. Because notice, who does Paul go after in 1 Corinthians 5? He censures the church. He censures the church for appearing to condone what even the pagans find contemptible. He doesn't go after the incestuous man. He says nothing about the stepmom, which means she likely wasn't a professing believer, probably wasn't a part of the body. Again, he says nothing about the incestuous man. It is the church's responsibility to deal with the issue, not merely the pastors or the elders behind some closed doors, but the church publicly, he says, verse 4, when you are assembled. Practically, this means just one thing. If you think about it practically, that when you come to Christ, you are inviting 
other Christians into your life. You're inviting other Christians to speak into your life. You know, we love to talk about private religion. We love to talk about private religion as if what happens right between two consenting adults is nobody else's business. It's nobody else's business. And yet, Christianity, Christianity knows nothing of private religion as if what happens is outside the boundaries of the church to speak into it. Right? According to Christ, right, our private business as individuals is actually the church's business. If we err seriously and unrepentantly, it is the church's responsibility to speak into that. And if you don't like the way that sounds, I fear you've picked the wrong religion. For when necessary, Jesus commands by his own authority. we got to get up in one another's grill sometimes. That's an expression I didn't know out in California, but I've learned it here. We've got to get up in one another's grill. Sometimes we have to get into each other's personal business, into our private lives. So members of UBC, are you willing to do this? Are you willing to do this? Are you willing to graciously and humbly and yet at the same time clearly approach a fellow member if you are concerned about sin in their life? Or does that just sound too judgmental, you know, too unloving to do such a thing? We have to think of ourselves as physicians for one another's souls. And any good physician, right, what is a good physician going to do? They're going to encourage healthy habits. And so we must do the same as we pray for one another by encouraging one another in the word, by recognizing evidences of grace in one another as Paul so wonderfully did at the start of the book. And yet at the same time, what would we say about that doctor if that doctor saw that there was some cancer raging within your body and yet he took no action? He said nothing about it. Well, he wouldn't be a very faithful doctor, would he? He certainly wouldn't be a very loving doctor to withhold and to fail to speak to you about that. As Christians, we are called to both encourage healthy habits and to fight disease. We're called to do both things with one another. And yet before you go and approach a fellow member over some sin in their life, it is just good at that point to stop and ask a question or two. What's my relationship like with that person? Like Paul, as he knew the Corinthians, spent 18 months with them intimately. Paul knew them well. Do I know that person very well? Do I actually have a history of encouraging that person by recognizing evidences of grace in their life? Do I have that that testimony among them? Or am I actually prone to be critical? Am I, have I actually become the self-appointed sort of chief of the of the sin police? Because a truly humble person can hear correction from absolutely anyone. A truly humble person can. And yet it is a whole lot easier to hear critique from one that you know loves you and has a history of encouraging you as opposed to one who merely looks for faults. Encourage one another. Get in a habit of doing that. And when you need to speak a hard word of correction... 
Chances are that person will hear you a whole lot better. If you're married, you should know immediately what I mean. All right, friends, Christ calls churches. He calls all churches that bear his name to be obedient to his word and therefore to be unwilling to be unwilling to practice discipline when required, that's like a church saying, you know what, God, your word is clear, but we know better. And friends, that is just the epitome of pride and arrogance, the same thing the Corinthian church struggled from. Humble congregations are willing to submit to Christ and to his word, even when in the midst of that they struggle a little bit to see the good. For fat budgets... Fat budgets, rising baptismal numbers, those mean nothing to Christ when members have a habit of turning a blind eye to sin. But notice again when this happens. When does this happen? When they're assembled. Again, this is not the elders behind closed doors. There's no decision unilaterally handed down from some presbytery or for some bishop someplace else. It doesn't occur across several sites or across even several services when they are gathered together as a body in its entirety. And here, I think what we see in 1 Corinthians 5 is a picture of elder-led congregationalism. For we have Paul, an apostle with all the authority of his apostolic office, far more authority than I possess as I speak to you. But he doesn't wield that authority like a club. He makes his judgment, and then he refers his judgment to the congregation. And notice he advises the congregation to follow him in his judgment. And I think this is exactly analogous to a congregation's relationship with her elders. So elders will take the lead in shepherding and in guiding the affairs of the congregation. They're going to make recommendations. They're going to make calls, and the church is actually called to follow their elders, actually submit to them, Hebrews 13, 17. And yet in those serious matters of discipline and doctrine, right, the the who of the church, text like 1 Corinthians 5, the, the what do we believe, things like Galatians 1, in those cases, Paul goes right to the church. They are that final authority, not an outside board, not a bishop. And though Christ calls churches to make these judgments, he calls churches to make such judgments, consider the spirit. I want you to consider just for a moment the spirit in which Paul does this. Because back in 4.14, he wrote that I did not write these things to make you ashamed. He does not shame them, but he wants to admonish them how as beloved children, right, as loved children. This isn't some spiritual spanking. He administers sort of with furrowed brow and pursed lips. Paul uses that term brother, and it's a term of great affection and endearment. And he uses that term brother in 1 Corinthians more than he does in any other book. Despite all the church's problems, he has tremendous affection for them. And his concerns and commands are reflected in all that affection. And it should be no different with the church and with the members of the church. We act out of similar affection, out of spiritual concern for one another. I love how a pastor put it. He said, if you can discipline a church member without a broken heart and teary eye, perhaps you need to be disciplined. 
Right? That's the heart in which Paul writes. That's the heart that ought to grab us as we have to think about such commands. And yet it does just beg the question, again, why all the trouble though? Why all the trouble? Why would Christ command something that would be obviously so hard on this young church to undertake? Does Paul not know that if the church disciplines this influential patron within society, whomever he is, that action could cost some of those members dearly? Wouldn't this just open Pandora's box? Wouldn't it cause more division and even more disunity within the body? Right, that's what human wisdom says. That's how we would approach the conversation. But that's not actually what divine wisdom says. It teaches otherwise. And fourthly and lastly, we see this, that Christians are to judge those within the body, in Christ's authority, for the preservation of souls and the purity of the church. Fourthly and lastly, and if this is sort of the sentence, the summary for 1 Corinthians 5, Christians are to judge those within the body, in Christ's authority, for the purpose, right? For the preservation of souls and for the purity of the church. We read there in verses 5 and 6 that the church gathered in Christ's name under his authority to, quote, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that, right, why are they to do this? Here's the reason, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Right, here's the purpose behind it all. And what we see, it's not punitive. It's actually corrective. Its goal is to restore the brother. Its purpose is to bring the erring person back to walk with the Lord, back into fellowship with Christ in the local church. And if the church represents the kingdom of Christ on this, in this earth, which it does, then the world would represent, right, that, that realm where the devil holds sway. And thus delivering the man over to Satan is just synonymous with saying, cast him out of the membership of the body. But how does delivering the man over to Satan, how does that possibly result in him being restored? I mean, it seems counterintuitive. How does that work? When I was talking with my wife this week, and she reminded me of a time, a difficult time in her life, when she was a teenager, and she was struggling to follow Christ, beginning to dabble a bit in some of the things of the world. When, when she transferred from one high school, and she went to another high school, really a, a prep school in Monterey, California. And it was an excellent school filled with lots of very wealthy children with lots of very absent parents. Boys were clad head to toe in black, faces white, sort of Trent Reznor wannabes, if you know the era of the 90s, the Nine Inch Nails. I mean, that sort of depicts what it was like dropping acid before class, somehow getting A's on exams. It was a dark place. It was a dark place. And she talked about how actually being exposed to that darkness, feeling the despair of it, feeling the loneliness of it, that actually drove her back to the light. She saw that it would lead nowhere good. She wanted to flee back to the good words of the scriptures, back to God and back to Christ. And I think that's a picture, a little bit of how discipline is meant to work. The weight of being removed from the body, being exposed to the darkness of the world, it's to wake up the person to their spiritual condition so that they might repent and be saved before it's too late. It's sort of the congregation's last-ditch effort, waving their hands, hey, 
You're in a spiritual stupor. You're like on the abyss. You're in a dangerous place. It's the last thing we do to try to wake the soul up. And far from desiring ill, Paul sees it as an exercise of true love. God disciplines those he loves. Hebrews 12, 6. The church is to discipline those they love. And the beautiful thing, if you go on to read in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, is that it seems this man did repent. It had the desired effect. And so Paul exhorts the church to welcome the man back as a brother. Right? The sorrow's enough. Bring him back in. Welcome him back into the family. Now, I recognize this. If you've come this morning as a non-Christian, this is an unusual sermon. It's not a typical message. And it may seem odd. But church discipline is really but a foretaste. It's but a mild picture of the judgment that all of us will one day face when we meet the Lord. And yet for everyone, as it would be for this man who leaves their sin, who flees to Christ, for all those who do that, there is forgiveness. For on the cross, Christ became that Passover lamb. He became the one that was sacrificed for our sins. He has borne the punishment of your sins. If you would turn from those sins and if you would look to him and if you would trust in him, it doesn't matter how significant that sin was. We go on reading in in 1 Corinthians and they were guilty of significant sins. And yet Christ's grace is more than sufficient. He abounds in grace to receive those who see their need of a savior and turn to him. And if you've come as a non-Christian, that's my encouragement to you. We're not judging those outside the world. We're presenting you with the good news of the gospel that we all must believe if we are ever to be reconciled to God. But the church's judgment, it's, a, it's, it's an encouragement. It has the purpose to restore the erring brother's soul. But it's fundamentally, we see it's actually fundamentally about the purity of the church. And that's what Paul highlights in verses 6 through 8. He uses that image of leaven as an, as an image for sin. You know, it's like when we go to the store and get this sort of box of raspberries, and there's that one that's kind of moldy. And you know, if you don't take it out, in a day or two, what? The whole thing is spoiled. The whole thing's rotten. Because that's how sin works within a body. And the whole church is endangered by the congregation's indifference to do something about that, again, serious, demonstrable, unrepentant sin. For sin that sin that no one deals with is eventually sin that we all are going to have to deal with. When we contemplate serious sin, you know, we tend, maybe you came in this morning, contemplating, actually debating, losing that fight and a desire to pursue some considerable sin. Maybe it's adultery. Maybe it's some form of theft or greed or drunkenness, whatever it might be. We think of of how that relation, how that action, it may affect our relation with God, maybe those immediately around us, but we don't often think about how it affects the whole body. And yet Paul's saying it has a heinous effect upon the whole body. I don't know if that's you. I just encourage you to stop for a moment. Look around. Look around those people in the pew before you. We all struggle in the fight for sin. Do you want to see those things you might be contemplating? Do you want to see them borne out in the lives of the brothers and sisters here? Do you want them to follow in that same way? And if you don't, Paul's saying, don't 
do it. Don't pursue out of love for them. Hold fast to Christ and to his word. God cares deeply about the purity. He cares deeply about the purity of his church. And when we treat sin with a kind of callous indifference, what we're doing is we're dragging Christ's name through the mud. We're sullying his reputation, not only in the church, but even in the broader community at large. Because our churches are meant to be that sort of storefront display. What is God like? The community, the culture is supposed to be able to look at our church and they're supposed to see something of what God is like by looking at us. And discipline is finally about restoring Christ's reputation and character within the community. It can be painful. But Paul says it'll pay off. It'll pay off. For a church that fails to discipline will one day become a church that looks eerily similar to the world. There will be nothing distinct about their witness, no saltiness to it, no reason for people to listen to what that church has to say. It's why when discipline leaves the church, the Holy Spirit tends to follow right after it. You know, I asked at the outset, I said, okay, what do you think? What do you think poses the greatest threat to Christianity? And I asked because I think... Most of us instinctively assume that that which is outside of us poses the greatest threat to Christianity. It's what is out there. And in the church of Corinth and in our day, we may look at the eroticism that we face and we may see that as the greatest threat as everyday erotic liberties chip away at religious liberties, as business owners are fined, as fire chiefs are fired, as adoption agencies are closed, forced to close down. And yet, despite all of this, the Bible actually points us in a very different direction. It's not the world outside of us, but it's actually our acquiescence to the world within us. That's what presents the biggest threat to Christianity. It's not what's deplorable out there. It's what we tolerate in here. Paul calls us to spend less time ranting about what's happening in the world and more time grieving over our witness together when we choose to tolerate sin. Paul cares far more about the purity of our churches than he does the perverseness of our culture. Do you? Do you? Let's pray together. Father, these are good words. They're your words, and yet we recognize they're hard words. And yet, at the same time, we see And we trust that your words are good and they are right. And so we humbly submit ourselves to them. Lord, we pray that as we are obedient to your word, that our corporate witness would shine even more brightly. That our desire to obey you would actually lead us to be a church that would be more evangelistic, would have a stronger testimony to Christ than should we choose to disobey you. Father, help us to desire the purity of your church as much as you desire it. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.